Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. So the title of my lesson today is Set Your House in Order. When you're about to have guests in your home, you don't just hope that they'll be able to manage in whatever the current state of your home is, if you have enough notice before they arrive, at least not if you're a generous host. When guests are to arrive, you clean, you cook, you maybe declutter the shelves a little so your life doesn't look as chaotic. It will be an extended stay, but if some of those set aside a space for them to be comfortable, have a little piece of home for themselves. My point is, you don't do nothing. It's an unspoken rule that a host goes the extra mile to show love and care for a guest in her home. Within the church, there are some things that need to be taken care of before our guests arrive for their extended stay. Some cobwebs in the corner, maybe some dirt that's been swept under the rug, and a place just for them that needs to be made up. There should be proof that we, their hosts, have anticipated their arrival and that we do not expect them to do the cleaning for us. The prodigals will come, and when they do, I hope that we are ready. The Lord has been nudging my heart about this for some time now. And while I do not, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> and while I do not have an exhaustive list of the things that we need to consider in light of their return, these four specific measures are what God has been laying on my heart to prepare myself for so that I'm not caught in the crosswinds and fighting to swim upstream while I could actually be assisting in the revival. I certainly don't want to hinder what the Lord is trying to do through the church, but I also don't want the prodigals to feel the weight of responsibility the second that their knees hit the altar. Though they will stand alongside us in this fight, at first they need to heal and they need to rest from their long journey. So I need to find and determine these necessary measures upstream so that they flow right into the moment when they are needed. So, the first measure, the first point, is to be a good big brother. And we will start where you'd think we would start, the very story where we get the term prodigal. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. A journey. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country 
who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he's not even paying attention <laughs> to what the son's saying, <laughs> doesn't even care. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf <clears throat> for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. <clears throat> when the prodigal son came back, how did the brother respond? Jesus doesn't tell us if he changed his attitude once the father gave him correction. But for the prodigal's sake, I hope he did. I hope the father didn't have to deal with a once faithful, now bitter son and somehow balance that with his gratefulness for the return of his other son who had finally come home. I hope equally as much that the prodigal didn't have to see past the bitterness of his brother while he tried to remain home. What if his brother's attitude eventually drove him back away from the father's house? I have to be a good big brother. <clears throat> In Matthew 20, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. 
And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. It's not really about those of us who have stayed in the fold. It's about growing the fold. And it's not that God disregards those of us who have remained in the fold the entire time. Certainly not, because we have a God who sees us where we are, and he knows our needs all along the way. But we are also not going to get a pat on the back for every good thing we do. Parties aren't going to be thrown for us on the regular, simply because we are doing what we know to do. But finding something that is lost is cause for celebration, and much more when it is a lost soul. Just as every worker received the same amount of wages, though they all worked for different amounts of time, we should fully expect that God is going to use and bless and perpetuate the kingdom through those who came in at the last hour just as much as he will through those who were faithful from the beginning. What God gives to us is God's to give freely to each man as he desires, and all of it is out of his generosity. Recall also what the father told his oldest son, that while all of this celebration may have taken place once the younger brother came back, everything that the father had was the son's the entire time he was with him. He had access to everything the whole time. Those who remain have just as much blessing and access to provision and celebration as the ones who are coming back. So while we wait for the prodigals to return, why don't we access the great wealth our father, of our Father to walk in the Spirit and in victory? And if we're caught up doing that, it will likely set our hearts and our priorities right so that when the prodigals do return, we won't have to try so hard to keep the right attitude and to be a good big brother. On that note, our second point, reprioritize. In Mark chapter 5, we find Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee and coming into the Gerasenes where there's a man with an unclean spirit. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. People often assume that the pig herders here were Gentiles. But the scripture actually doesn't specify that. So it is possible that these men were actually Hellenizing Jews which means that they incorporated Greek culture into their lives, which, for the people of God, is not great. Old Testament law dictated that God's people were not to consume pork, but at that time there was a huge market for swine in the area near the Sea of Galilee. Traditionally, Jews would not carry trades that put them in close proximity, close proximity to things that considered unclean by Mosaic law. So it seems that these men if they were Jews, had lost sight of some pretty important things for the sake of financial gain. When Jesus delivered this man of the legion and killed the means of their future income, their hearts were already not in the right place. They couldn't have cared any less that the man finally had relief, or even for their own sakes, that he wouldn't be screaming on the hillside anymore. They had gotten used to the noise anyways. What these, men, what these men cared about was financial comfort. But with one command, Jesus simultaneously delivered a bound man and showed these men that their treasures had not been laid up in heaven. It was probably best that Jesus rattled their cages by directly contrasting a man delivered of an unclean spirit with their willingness to compromise their convictions over some worldly gain. But even if these men weren't Jews and just Gentiles making honest wages, their priorities were still off base. To beg Jesus to leave after he had delivered a man? Think of the others that Jesus may have intended to deliver but didn't because a few pig farmers wanted him to stop destroying their salaries. Take a look at the things that you have on a pedestal. Maybe your reputation your career, your level of financial comfort, your traditions or opinions. Whatever it may be, pray earnestly and find whether these things take precedence in your heart over the deliverance of bound souls. And if they do, God can restore balance in our hearts to be aligned with his kingdom's purpose. Number three, be ready to get messy. Messy. 
And to show you what I'm talking about, I'm going to read from one of my absolute favorite stories in Scripture. John 11, um, 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I love in the KJV, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus had been alive and then he died. And when he came back, those with whom he would be living were tasked with removing the stench and appearance of death. Jesus could have done it, but for some reason he told them to do it. He actually could have just raised him from the dead and then he walked out with nothing on him. But he still had the bindings and the stench and the the appearance of death and his community of people were tasked with removing it for him. He couldn't see for himself because his head was covered in a binding made for dead men and dead men can't see. Martha was already keen on how things were gonna smell But little did she know, she and her family and friends had to get up close and personal with that smell. It was messy, but it was necessary for Lazarus to fully be able to live. But Jesus didn't expect him to do it alone. Lazarus needed help. Prodigals are going to be coming home with some serious messes. I think, honestly, some of the most serious messes that the modern church has ever had to deal with. But we must be willing to deal with them. It's going to stink. And it's going to be a lot of work. But we are the ones called to remove the wrappings of death so that these saints restored can see clearly and come back to a fully functioning life. Lastly, number four, and this is just always, this is all the time. (laughs) Be humble. To prodigals and to those already serving God. As I prayed for the prodigals not too long ago, I was telling the Lord, sometimes I don't even know how to pray for them. They are so far removed from my life that I don't know what their thought processes are. I haven't heard their opinions or their feelings in so long. I don't know who they are anymore. How do I pray for them, God? 
And he said this. Pray that they would, pray that they would be able to forgive the church. Many people who used to be in the church were overworked, underappreciated, disregarded, lied about, lied to, defrauded, ignored. No one believed them. No one invested in them. I'm not trying to bash the church, but we need not think that prodigals merely left the safety of the fold of God because of selfishness or pride. Some people left the church because it legitimately no longer felt safe. As the world waxes worse and worse, its influence creeps into the church, and whether we like it or not, people act as a result of that influence. We've got to be willing to stand in place of the church members who failed the lost in the past and say, I'm sorry. We can't make excuses for it. We can't justify it. Members of the body of Christ have every bit of the ability to fail and be nasty and hurtful as people in the world do because though we are the bride of Christ, we're not with the bridegroom yet. And until we are, we will be tempted by our flesh and sometimes it will win. So why not be apologetic to those we have hurt, even if it wasn't us directly hurting them? Paul said to mourn with those who mourn. We should weep with those who weep. A lot of the time, the first step into healing is knowing that someone believes you, that they believe that what you say happened to them really happened. We may find that we are weeping for sins that the body committed in the past with the prodigals so that the prodigals can receive the restoration they need. The group of people who make up the church is far from perfect. But what is much worse than that is when we refuse to accept responsibility for past mistakes that caused real damage. We are all one body. And if the body hurts someone, I should be willing to take responsibility as part of that body for the pain that it caused. So as the Lord spoke to me, I have been praying that the hearts of the prodigals would be moved towards forgiveness. But I've also been praying that we would be willing to admit that the church has done wrong. It will earn their respect for owning up to the mistakes and make them open to healing and mending of relationships. But here's the other side of that coin of humility. We've got to be humble towards the church. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Right. <laughs> but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, as if the first part of that sentence wasn't hard enough. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found 
In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. (coughs) Jesus had every right to be full of himself, to boast and to be proud. But he disregarded that right, and instead, he served. How much more, then, are we responsible to swear off our right to boast? Because after all, anything we have is by his hand anyway. We are to take on the mind of Christ and esteem others as better than ourselves. That has, by far, been the hardest biblical command for me to submit to and obey. It will be a struggle till the day I die. But the earthly and heavenly rewards of such a submission will be incalculable. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This command to his disciples came right after Jesus washes all of their feet at the Last Supper. And then he reveals to them who it is that will betray him. Immediately before Judas went to hand Jesus over to the chief priests, Jesus washed his feet. He was still serving the very one who would put him in death's grip. As a kid, every year, my church would have a New Year's Eve watch night service. And every December 31st, I knew to expect the annual foot washing. How would that be for a birthday party, Micah? (laughs) Every year, every year. The men would be in the prayer room and the the women would go to the gymnasium where some blessed volunteer filled about 30 plastic dishpans with room temperature water and lined them up against the overflow wall. A chair sat in front of each one where the foot washing receiver would sit to be served. While one row of women sat, the other row of women washed. When we had all moved through the line, we would switch places and repeat the ritual. Probably one of the most traumatic parts of my childhood was being forced year after year to rub the water-soaked, pantyhose-laden feet of about half of these women who knew all year long that this was happening, and they still chose to wear pantyhose. What does that do to a kid? (laughs) Now that I think about it, it's probably why I don't wear pantyhose. I can't stand to relive the trauma. (laughs) Tights. Tights are okay. Pantyhose, no. I really hated it back then. But now looking back, I'm thankful that the leadership in my church made the commitment to teach us what it was to be a servant. It didn't matter the animosity that you had with some of those women. You were going to wash their feet. There was no way around it. The smell of the water may have left its mark on me, but I'll also never forget the sound of humble cries and weeping before the Lord that echoed back and forth against those gymnasium walls. 
what was once mere water from a church kitchen faucet began to mix with the salty, repentant tears of these precious women of God. We were no longer simply swishing water around each other's feet. We were on holy ground. Every movement now generated by the unconditional love that the body of Christ is called to operate in. Washing someone's feet does not have to be taken literally, though it can. But it is also symbolic for simply fulfilling a need that requires doing the undesirable. Because by this, all will know. You know what's really going to get the attention of the woman who left the church because people wouldn't stop gossiping about her and each other? When she sees them loving one another, standing in defense instead of tearing each other down. You know what will break down the prodigal's argument that the church is hypocritical? When he sees people who used to avoid each other showering one another in love and support. The way I preach to the prodigal starts with how I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ. Doesn't matter if our personalities mesh. Doesn't matter if we've hurt each other in the past. His word says that love covers a multitude of sins. Are you afraid of how they'll respond if you try to mend fences? Perfect love casts out fear. Love is the answer. What will show that we are his disciples is if we wash one another's feet, no matter the hurt or betrayal that has preceded this moment. We have Christ to look to not only as an example, but as a source of power to fulfill all of these needs. In and of myself, I cannot love unconditionally or think of others as greater than myself or be willing to serve those who despise me or let go of my worldly comforts. Maybe I need him to cast my swine down into the sea and for my sake and salvation out of the abundance of his love for me, he will. I cannot be completely selfless and love my brother without condition by my own strength. That takes a strength, something fierce, a strength otherworldly and out of my reach if not for the Holy Ghost. I need to lean on the Lord for the ability to do any and all of these things. Because this is not just a checklist for me to accomplish. It's a reminder that whether I just got here or I've been here all my life, God will never stop working on me and changing me. He will continue the work that he started in me so that it can continue on in the prodigals who are coming home to us. Will our house be ready? And more importantly, will our hearts? Let's pray.